Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon. I'm joined by Mr. John Kaplan. Cap, welcome back for your trip. How, how was it, buddy? How was oh, it? it was good, buddy. <clears throat> good. I'm feeling rested and ready to go. Thank you. Tell everybody where you went. Oh, I did a little dual trip. I went out to Canada and spent some time in Banff and then uh, went fishing in Montana. So feeling feeling blessed about that. Thank you for asking. You're welcome. You're welcome. Caught a couple of fish. Caught a couple of fish, brother. All right. Hey, Cap. Our guest today started selling his selling career at PTC, where he was selling CAD software in the design and manufacturing rich state of Arkansas. <laughs> so he was, set up, he was set up immediately for failure, right? But he grew to be a regional director at PTC and he left to run the Americas for Clarify, which was eventually acquired by Amdocs. After Amdocs, he was the executive VP for Eglu, which was acquired by Nice Systems. Kelly moved on to BMC Software as a VP of sales and from BMC to Bizarre Voice as the CRO or Chief Revenue Officer. Since then, Kelly's been the CRO at Accruent, which was acquired by Fortiv, and president and CRO at Insight Software. And he's currently president at OE Connection. Cap, please help me welcome my friend and four-time CRO, Kelly Connery. Hey, uh, <clears throat> Kelly, it's great to see you, buddy. Thanks for being with us. Good to be with you. Good to see you both. And uh, it's like uh, Belichick and Saban. So I'm, I'm uh, in great company here. Well, first hey, of all, how are you? I heard through the grapevine that you got hit by a moose or, or you hit a moose. What, ha- what happened? Yeah, it's probably uh, right. So I'm fine. That was actually seven years ago. I was actively road cycling in Austin. I was between jobs. So it was after Bizarre Voice and before Cruent. And I had a goal to get up to like 250 miles cycling a week. It was the very first morning, the very first cycle between jobs, 545, me and one other person. And I was coming down a hill, 28 miles an hour. And out of nowhere, with no time to do anything other than to see the rib cage, a uh, mule deer came out and I hit it square going about 20 miles per hour <laughs> later and then what happened later i woke up from the hospital and i had two questions like am i okay and how's the deer and my buddy was like the deer went to the side of the road and smoked a cigarette and was complaining about why you hit it. <laughs> yeah so i'm fine needless to say i went out and researched um things like peloton and others since then so not much oh, smokes bike. I thought that was recent. So tell me what happened. Did you get a concussion? Did you break yeah. anything? So the cycle helmet did its job. It, it wow. you know, gave way as it should. I landed on my head. I slid for about uh, 18 feet. 
the tire came off, you know, wow. stuff everywhere. The funny thing, and my buddy said that cars were going by at 6 a.m. in the morning. It's total dark and not even stopping while there's a cyclist laid out on the road. Yeah, so you kind of wonder what, what were those people going home from doing? Um, That's a rough crowd for cyclists, man. Yeah, wow. But concussion and my spine, nothing was broken, but it was, it wasn't the same for three or four years, but I feel extremely fortunate. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you are. Dude, I hit a, uh, I hit a, uh, a deer in a, Grand Cherokee and totaled the Grand Cherokee. I can't even imagine uh, hitting a deer on a bicycle. Holy smokes. Yeah. yeah no time to react. I mean, it was no. just, there it was, it came out of the woods and it was a winding road. And, and then I kind of remember a crunch of the rib cage and then I was airborne. You must have yeah, you your or... tea kettle. Your front wheel must've stopped yeah. and your back wheel comes up and throws you. Especially yeah. at, I'm surprised you were only going 28 coming downhill in some of those hills in Austin because you can go a lot faster. Yeah, I mean, if I was letting it go in the day, I usually would be going 45 on that hill, but it was right. night. I had my light on. It was, oh, it was early nighttime. Morning. I thought it was 545. Well, it, was, it was early morning. It was dark. And we was call that morning. nighttime, John. Yeah. Quit showing off. All right. <laughs> John, I think you and I cycled once in Austin. We did. We did. Yeah, you guys yeah. took me on some pretty decent-sized hills. Yeah. So not much road cycling since. So Kelly, let's, let's kind of start from the beginning. You know, you have a lot of experience selling software now, but when you first started, I remember you telling me, you know, you basically defined yourself as an artist where you thought that you sold strictly on relationships. So how and when did you start to incorporate, let's say the science of selling into some of your artistic abilities? Yeah. And, and if you, Back up, you know, I graduated with a journalism degree and I actually thought I was going to go into something re related to sports news. And basically, I, uh, I couldn't pay my student debt with what you could get starting as a beat reporter in Houston. So I lived on one of my brother's couches and got into selling copiers first for about seven months uh, with a sharp distributor. Uh, and the funny thing is I owned two suits that my in-laws had bought at a store called Ready Chess King. <laughs> i remember those in the in the malls right do you yeah. remember the suits with the shoulder pads <laughs> amen so i was calling on high rises in houston cold calling in person trying to sell copiers that was my first seven months then i sold air freight so through those i didn't have the benefit of really good training and enablement like i didn't know when i closed the deal why i closed it and, and when i lost i wasn't really sure why I had good EQ. I was a good intuition and, and I could try and understand what the problem was and convince them that our solution was best. Fast forward. Um, there's a whole story about getting into PTC, but I got myself into PCC, PTC and I sold so hard to get into the job because I knew I could do it um, that I landed in the country of Arkansas, as you said. And, yeah. and in 1995, I don't know about today, but there just wasn't a tremendous amount of mechanical design going on in no. Arkansas. No. Um, and so first I was surrounded by people. I, I remember being telling myself, like, I'm going to fail. It, there's so many really smart athletes here. Most had never sold software before, but many had come from places where they had great training, Xerox to name one or HP. And, um, and so I started to become aware of the things I did well, mainly what I did really naturally well was identify and build champions, but the whole 
rest of the playbook and how to make sure I did it in a repeatable fashion because PTC had taken the time, a lot of smart people to say, okay, we've won hundreds of times. What's the common denominators in those wins? And how do we put them into a simple formula that, you know, the average person can follow? And so it was during that period that I started to, as a salesperson, be like, okay, um, I can apply my artistic bent, but if I follow the process, I'm going to have more success as an individual contributor more often. Hmm. And what was the biggest learning when you tried to implement the, the process? Yeah, I mean, it was more repeatable when you could, it's almost like uh, having a caddy. You can go to the caddy and, and analyze where you are on the course and what shots should you make next based on what you had learned at the moment. Like you had a framework to operate in and say, whoa, I'm in the other fairway. How did I get here? Right. right. And try and, you know, get yourself back. So you had a, a framework to refer back to. And then obviously it becomes critically important as you move to the next level. I was uh, consciously incompetent for the first year at Parametric. And by the way, I was in a remote office. There was me and one sales engineer um, who joined me and moved from Alabama. We were in West Lo uh, Riddle, Little Rock, Arkansas. So we were in an office where you could sponge off people and hear how they were making calls and listening right. to campaigns. <clears throat> yeah. And, but you also learned, you know, why you won and why you lost. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which you didn't and, know before. Yeah. And it was, it was, I remember many a night, um, you know, virtually in tears thinking a fear of failing in the job um, because it was a very, it was an excellent solution. The territory probably wasn't the best territory the state of Arkansas at the time, but I'd found my ways to mold shops and other places where you could build a decent business. The playbook was excellent, right? And so I, I during that first year said, okay, I don't know if I can succeed in this territory, but I can succeed with this playbook and I could actually articulate to someone else how to follow the playbook and succeed. Or at least I was in the early innings of learning it. Some, the, the, the people that want to go against playbook or process will always tell you, oh, when you try to do that, that's micromanagement. What, what, do you, what would you say to those people? That when you go away from the playbook? No, when you start to incorporate a playbook for your sales force and, and a sales process, oh, that's micromanagement. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'd be surprised to hear that in this day and age. But if I did, I'd be like, look, all great teams have a recipe that they care enough and take enough time enough to document it because then they can scale, right? And you can teach it to others, right? You can help people move to consciously competent and unconsciously competent. And so that's not micromanagement. That's truly caring about making your people successful and, and helping them understand the plays and the sequence to follow. Yeah, that's what I always think. Any great, if you love sports, any great sports team has a playbook, right? And people have to follow the playbook, right? And it is so that you know where everybody needs to be and what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong and what skills you need to develop and what knowledge you might be lacking to execute the play flawlessly. So I agree with you. Yeah, and I, for me, you know, Medic was happened. I mean, I feel fortunate that I was at the company where, the acronym, it could have been many other acronyms, but the acronym based on the proven success they'd seen was developed there. So I learned there 
Um, and then specifically, like I knew if I follow this qualification methodology, whatever the sales process process is at the company I'm at, um, and really 90% of it to me was champion building. Do I know how to identify? Do I know how to educate and test champions? Like I'll be successful. And as I moved on to frontline and then second line, that became critical to my success. Yeah. You said earlier that you thought once you moved to first line, let's go there, that you could teach people how to do it, right? What was the, what was the biggest challenge when you moved from, if you can remember, moving from uh, sales rep to first line manager? Do you yeah, well, um, two of the challenges? Yeah, so I, uh, I moved to Dallas from Arkansas. That's probably a key piece of the story. Um, yeah, I was going to leave the company had lots of discussions, one of them with you. And I think I remember you can confirm this. You said, Hey, you lasted longer than any of us thought. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, to your point, there was really very little design and manufacturing going on in Arkansas. So the fact that you could carve out, you know, a good couple of years there was phenomenal. Yeah. And Dallas was an amazing market, great team there, best sales engineers I've probably ever worked with. Moved into frontline manager six months after moving to Dallas. So I've been with the business about two years. Um, and, you know, at the frontline manager job, it's in my mind, it's like 80% people, 20% the playbook, but it's making sure like he or she who feels the best team wins. I felt like the things that made me good artist in selling made me a great recruiter. And, you know, at PTC, the manager did the recruiting. There was no, you know, um, other person to look to for your recruiting. So you developed good skills on how to identify talent, sneaky ways to find where they were. And so recruiting development, and then the culture and management of these, of the people retention were kind of the three legs of the stool for a frontline manager. And so I was naturally good at recruiting. I authentically truly cared about the success of each person on the team. Sometimes that success meant they needed to go somewhere else. Right. But I truly cared about the people uh, teaching them the playbook and that it would lead them to success. Some of them were more naturally scientists, some were artists. Uh, and then the culture to make sure that if they left the team in a perfect world as a leader, no one voluntarily leaves your team in a perfect world. They only leave the team because you've promoted them or you've decided there's a better place for them to be now. That's unachievable. It's impossible. People will always surprise us, but that's the goal. Yeah. Hey, Johnny, I mean, let's stay on that for a second, that yeah, frontline manager, yeah. because I really feel like it's lost today. Like I walk into companies and, and you know, I ask about scaling and growth and I hear, you know, the excuses around, you know, I can't get the recruiters to do this, the war on talent and you know, I can't get HR to do that. And it just baffles me. It, it blows my mind that that frontline manager, it feels like we've, and I don't know, maybe it was just us back in the day at PTC. It, I don't know. Maybe we were the only ones that really thought about that, that frontline manager owned it. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing today, you know, at different levels, you've been advisor and <clears throat> board members and, and, um, and CROs and, what do you think, where do you think that sits now? You know, do, is it a, do people believe that frontline managers own the people aspect of, you know, of the job, meaning 
they own recruiting. What are the pros of it? What are the cons of it? And is it still, is it still relevant today? Yeah, I think the, the smart, the great companies, whatever you want to call it, help the managers and the recruit, the managers know that the recruiting of their team is their job. And, you know, to use the, the sports analogy, sure, you have scouts and, and you have lots of resources, um, but ultimately knowing what you want to go get is your job. And as a frontline manager, like I learned the arts of calling the front desk and saying, hey, sorry, I played basketball with this gentleman. I can't remember his name. He looked like this. And I know he's he had mentioned he'd just run your award for top rep. Like I learned how to build my pipeline to start to get to the, you know, not in play players. And that's one of the problems today is people think it's not their job to always be recruiting and building pipeline. So they pick the best choice of what's available that comes to them. Yeah. Right now, if they have a great search firm that knows what they're doing is probably coming in at a high quality, but many it's people who are out looking and they're not, the managers aren't proactively owning the responsibility of seeking always for those A players to bring them into the discussion. Which yeah. always blew my mind because that's going to be your team. Yeah. You know, and if you were going to recruit, if you were going to own a sports team, what's the first thing that you would do? You go try to get the best players you could possibly get to be on the ice or on the field or on the court. So it blew my mind that as a coach, you didn't want to have the best people that you could possibly find. Yeah. So Kelly, I remember like you telling me when you used to find an A player and get them to meet you in the office, you would literally take the resume from them, stick it in a drawer and close the drawer and try to really get to know the person instead of, you know, interviewing to the resume. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And um, throughout my career, there's been dozens of, um, people and talent and HR partners who have come through my office to explain to me that my approach to the interview is, is um, not well received. <laughs> um, but for me, it's the way I do two things. One, I truly get to know what that candidate is made of. So I can have a leaving that hour, an hour and a half, a really informed opinion on whether they have the intelligence, drive, experience, character that's going to set them up for success. And character is probably the most important. Mm -hmm. And so I would spend a ton of time in the interview and I'm happy to talk about how I did that. Second part is it gave me a chance to compete in case we weren't the top choice for that candidate. I wanted them to leave going, wow, that's the first time, whether I was frontline, second line, CRO, that someone didn't superficially get to know me. They spent like an hour in a programmatic way through different phases of my life, asking lots of open-ended questions to truly get to know me. And by the way, out of that, I would know what challenges they face, what their life experiences were, how they talk vulnerably, vulnerably about what they do and don't do well, where they are in their career. Like you'd have a great sense for this person will succeed here. They have what they need. Yeah, I love that because at the end of the day, you know, the characteristics or, and traits, that's, it's everything. Cause you usually find that out. If you don't do a good job in the first interview and you hire the person, you will find it out in the first six to nine months. Yeah. yeah. I think this is a, this is also a place where art and science come together. So I see a lot of great processes around uh, recruiting. <clears throat> I just had a conversation with somebody this morning about the, the dehumanization 
of the process that we got to be really, really careful about because we we don't get to the real understanding of the individual. And, then, you know, when you when that person comes on your team, like you'll get a real understanding of that individual, like really, really quick. So in an effort to to give our listeners some kind of heads up on that, like how do you um, how do you knowing all you know about the good processes and all the laws that are in place about, you know, information that questions you can ask and can't ask and that kind of stuff. Are there some go-to questions that you're using or you suggest using to really get to the, get to the point of who the real person is? Like, what are your suggestions there? Yeah. And and just to note all those um, people and talent folks that came by my office, they never came back because the, the way I would do it was great for me and the candidate and it never crossed those lines. And it also stayed away from all the textbook. Let me ask you the standard question. Let me let you tell me how great your resume is. And I would tell the candidate, I'd say, Hey, John, so listen, we're going to spend the time 70%. I want to want to get to know you deeply. And I'm going to give you a frame for that. We're going to spend 25% where it's just, I'm going to put the pen down and you ask me whatever you want, by the way, very important part of it, right? Because their questions tell me so much about how serious they're trying to figure out whether I'm someone they should spend time with for the next several years. They've met with other people. And if it's the right company, some questions will say they're selling. And I want to see someone who's trying to buy, is trying to figure out, is this right? Um, But I'd say, okay. And then in the last five minutes, I want to just give you feedback real time. So you leave here at least knowing um, what my feedback is versus the others you're meeting with. And then I would take them through. I'd say, look, I want to start in the beginning, even actually before the beginning. So if you're born in Houston, why were you in Houston? Oh, my parents lived there their whole lives. Or did they move there because my dad was in the oil business? I want to understand. And then I would take their life in three sections, you know, early, middle, high school, college, and ask the same questions. By the way, they're smart ones. By about the second phase, they've already got pattern recognition. So they're actually, without me asking the questions, they're answering them. And then we go on. And I basically take it from the from the time standpoint, hey, all right, so you're in high school in Houston, um, you know, or where are you living? Oh, we moved neighborhoods, why? Well, my parents separated, et cetera. Okay, great, where are you going to school? I actually went to a private school then, okay, why? Um, all right, where's your time going? Well, of course I said school, um, what kind of student were you? And they talk about what kind of student, high effort, low effort. Okay, all right, so when you're not going to school, what were you doing? I was big into music. How'd you get into music? Oh, my grandfather. I would just ask basic questions. First of all, they're off script. They were coming to tell me how excellent they are at enterprise software and skills. Now that's out the window. Right. You pick up on the ones who are authentically saying, okay, after about 10 minutes, he's genuinely interested. And actually we're following a framework. He's wanting to know where did my life go during times? And lots come out of that. Lots comes out of that. You get a real person. And then you'd follow that all the way through. And then honestly, at the resume, especially as I've been CRO and they come to me later in the process, I'm like, this is Budweiser hot seat. You know, the ESPN they used to do. Yeah. I I don't want to spend a lot of time. I just want to check some data points on your resume. And then I'd put the pen down and say, okay, it's your time. And I would come away with a really deep sense of what she valued, whether life has been amazing for her and she's taken full advantage of it, 
whether it threw some really crazy challenges at her, it's going to come out. It's in those phases, those good and those bads will come out and you learn a lot about the, the grit and the will and, and then how they made decisions later in life based on what they'd learned there. I love that. There's, there's no perfect story that you're expecting, but you are expecting somebody to have an emotional connection to their own story. John and I have interviewed a few folks on the Revenue Builders in the past. Uh, Doug Holliday did a great job of talking about that, where he talked about, you know, everybody has a story. And I, I think what I love about what you just, what you just um, connected us to is what I found is the most successful people in life are the ones who've made sense of their own story. So when you give them an opportunity to tell their story, and when you're asking those questions, it's not, it's not taking them forever to, to think about it. They've already made sense of their own story. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's a really, really powerful, uh, powerful strategy that you're using there. Again, we're talking about ways to really understand who the person is in front of you which again, I think is just, I don't want to say, I don't want to be a curmudgeon. It's not a lost art, but it's a very important art. So uh, well, John, I love to your that. original question to Kelly. I mean, there's no scripted questions, but if you are truly interested in what the person has to say or their story, questions are going to naturally flow just yeah. off their story. Right. Yeah. And if you think about, and it's so much more for CROs or leaders today, Winning hearts and minds in a competitive environment with all the things we know we have going on, hybrid work, et cetera. In that interview, I can at least plant a seed if they're right, if I determine and we determine they're the right fit. And usually at that point, by the way, I'm not the decision maker. The frontline manager, it's their team. I'm providing input. Yeah. <laughs> but I can plant a seed to water and cultivate of winning the hearts and minds, which as you know, it'd be nice if I could just step on stage and edutain a big group and I own their hearts and minds, but it's, there's no air attack. It's a, it's a hand-to-hand -hand combat with each person. And if you start off with the interview, truly knowing them and, yeah. and by the way, they want to flip it in their questions to go, okay, so Kelly, where'd you grow up? I'm like, that's for another time. <laughs> this is your time to find out what you need to know about us or the business to help you make a good decision. Right. Right. Hey, Kelly. So when you moved to second line, sure. What happens with a lot of second line managers is they don't exactly know what to do. So they do exactly what they did as first line managers. And so the poor sales rep has two managers above him or her that are just asking the same questions and doing the same things. Talk a little bit about, you know, some of the challenges moving from first line to second line manager, either for you specifically or in general, and what, how you think you should have segregation of duties between those two managers. Yeah. I mean, two, two things where I struggled um, were one, you know, when you become a, a second line manager, let's say you have a few or even more, you have to start to embrace the operational aspects of the job. You know, whereas uh, when you're managing reps, you're looking at leading and lagging indicators and you're trying to help figure out which one's getting stuck at the demo or where are they falling down in their skills in the playbook? When you step up, you have to start looking at other aspects of a team of 15 and you're managing through three or four managers. And do you have productivity? And do you know why you have productivity? And do you know the levers to pull? And 
if you have confidence there, then, okay, should you expand the team or reduce the team? And so understanding all that was not a natural place of comfort for me. I had to surround myself with managers and or sales operations partners to help me there. But those are big because you're now moving into trying to scale a team. The other part where I struggled, I remember doing like a strength finders or uh, Briggs, Myers-Briggs or something early on and said, hey, there was a comment that said, speaking generally, you're generally speaking. And I was like, okay. And I remember talking to people and they say, look, I know you. So I always understand you. But when you're communicating often through leaders, the smallest bit of distortion in your message by the time it lands on many can, can be way off the coordinates. And so I had to get really good at mm. um, speaking crisply and clearly with very clear intent of the message we were trying to send to the broader team on top of the playbook and the operational aspects. Two of those were things that I had to work on and still work on today. The operational part of it was a necessity to get better at, especially as you moved up. Yeah. So I think the uh, second line manager has take on more responsibility for people development because you get this first line manager who essentially has to post a bigger number every quarter. We already said that they're kind of in charge of, you know, owning the team or recruiting. Then they got 62 days or so to close a bigger number. They really don't know if, especially if they're brand new, how to really coach and develop people, train people, or more importantly, even assess what they're doing right and wrong. And this is where I think the second line manager kind of skates because anytime you see an organization, first line manager, second line manager, and then the CRO, and let's say you miss the number in the quarter, who really takes the hit? It's the first line manager and the CRO. And then you have the Teflon man or the Teflon woman in between. <laughs> no, you've seen it. That's why you guys are laughing. Yeah. But it's because we don't hold, we don't do a good job, or most organizations don't do a good job of really outlining the duties of the second line manager and holding them accountable to those duties. And mostly they should be developing people, is, is what I think they should be doing. In no, addition I, to making a number. I completely agree. The uh, because even, even if you want the frontline managers to appreciate and own the development program as much as you do, then life happens, right? And so they just can't think about it. And you have to start to think at that level. And by the way, we didn't hit on forecasting, right? Which is a second and third line is just crazy. Because as a first line, like you had your hands in it, you knew it. And second line, now everybody's got a slightly different approach and how they're hedging. And now you have to think about it in a way, because if at the second line and definitely a CRO table stakes is people can trust you. And if you can't find a way to deliver information, they can trust the forecast being the most important. It's a, it's a short tour in the job. Yeah. Yeah. I, I um, let's go. I want to go back to forecasting in a second. One thing I don't want to lose is especially the topics that we've been talking about, you know, great leaders have this kind of, people they're always good with people the greatest leaders i've ever seen they're always great with people you can have great process leaders you can have great strategy leaders and that kind of stuff but the the greatest ones that i've seen are you know really really good with people 
But I've also seen someone's biggest strength can be their biggest weakness in a second and third level manager. Let me give you an example. One of the things that I struggled with is I moved up the ranks and, you know, took a second line and third line manager. And uh, I always loved being with the troops. I loved being with the troops. And I never wanted to lose my connection with the troops. And sometimes what I would do is I'd go down levels for, for my own sanity to try to find out what's really going on on deals and to really understand what was going on. I felt like I had to be close to the troops. But at the same time, you can circumvent, you can kind of take away power from those other leaders in your chain of command. Does, is that resonating with you guys? Have you seen people struggle with that where they, they want to be popular, they want to still have the maintain the, the relationships with the troops and at the same time they, they're undercutting their, uh, their, their line managers. Comments on that. Yeah, I think it's a balancing act. Go ahead, John. No, yeah, I want you to go first. Yeah, I think it's a balancing act and Cap, you said it. Some people do it better than others. They, you know, you have to verify, you have to skip level and deep dive. One, the, the people need to know that you're not flying a desk somewhere back at corporate. At the same time, you can't, you can't allow that, that you jump into their job, right? And in a perfect world, you're bringing feedback to them and saying, this is what I heard from you that's validated. And this is what I think you may be missing. And, you know, it's a balancing act. Yeah, I agree with Kelly. It's a balancing act. You know, but you have to, as uh, even more important as you keep climbing the ladder in sales, you have to stay intimate with your people. You have to know what do they go through on a daily basis? What new challenges are they facing that I, as a CRO or second line manager, third line manager can help them with, right? And if, you don't, if you're not intimate with those people, then you lose touch of what you should be delivering to help them. And then at the end of the day, our jobs as leaders is to make them more productive. I love it. Lose that intimacy and that connection to them. Then we lose that. But it doesn't mean that you're undermining the first line manager or the second line manager, just because you're making sales calls at the same time, you discover certain things too. I can remember saying, Hey, I'm looking for some new first line managers. And then I would make everybody go, ah, we have nobody ready to be promoted. But then I'd make sales calls and go on sales calls with some sales reps and go, this person's absolutely ready to be promoted. But yeah. the manager was protecting their own fiefdom yeah. also. So this, it's a balancing act and you have to know why you're doing what you're doing. You can't just say, I'm, I'm going in here and I'm going to muscle out, you know, the first line or second line manager. You can't. Where I saw it a lot with me. If I'm really honest with myself is people like coming to granddad and not have to go to their parents. And they thought that they could get a better outcome with another level of management. And you have to be really, really careful with that. Like I see people do that really poorly is they like Johnny, like you said, they like being intimate. They like understanding what's going on. Uh, You know, but the first questions out of their mouth should be, Hey, did you talk to your, did you talk to your boss? Like I had to learn that somebody had to teach me that Mm. is the first thing that I asked was, Hey, before we get started on this conversation, did you talk to your boss? Uh, And it just kind of really got me in the right frame of mind to make sure that I was, you know, not taking away 
any of the power of that of that person because you know reps and people in general are very cagey they're very smart you see it with your own families you see it with i remember doing it when i was growing up i could go to one parent and get a, a more favorable outcome than the other parent and i just think it's a really really good concept to think about as you move up the chain yeah, yeah and i think back to john's or- original question too is uh you know, what you need to look for in a leader is all of those things that you get in a good rep, but more, mm-hmm. right? As the leader, can they check their ego at the door? Um, are they, can they be vulnerable with their teams? They don't have to have all the answers, you know, um, will they are willing to challenge you, right? And tell you that, they, you know, they think you're wrong and you're missing, right? All those things. And so it's, there is a, there's a, part of developing leaders at the second line. And as you move up, that's critical because one bad one, right. That's, that's not telling you the truth or not investing in their people. They're flying around as super salespeople on the big deal. Yeah. Um, it can, it can end badly. Hey, last one on this, Johnny um, and Kelly, because I think Kelly, you experienced this too, is that um, Johnny Mac did something years ago Um and he, he taught us this concept of, you know, one thing you got to look out for when reps go to be a manager, frontline manager, they sometimes have the tendency to go what we what we call going native. And, and what that means is, is that they have a difficult time understanding how to move from coworker, I'm with you, I understand you, to really protecting the company. And I kind of poo-pooed that when I first, you know, took some of my leadership roles. And then John had this concept. And Johnny, just real quick, um, you showed us this movie called 12 O'Clock High. You don't have to go into it in full detail. But but I think it's one of the greatest leadership on this topic of when you move from uh, individual contributor to leader and then leader, frontline leader to next line leader is the really ability to really point out and assess people that are struggling with kind of staying in this go native or being popular, or, you know, want to be a part of the gang versus the responsibility of protecting the company. Give us I a think, little, give I us a little bit on it. the biggest part is when you move to manager, you have to decide that it's not about you. You have to, because when, it, when you're a single contributor or individual contributor, it's all about you. When you get up, when you go to bed, what you do on the weekends, what accounts you call on, all that stuff. It's almost like when you're single and you get married and you have kids and all of a sudden you realize, Hey, (laughs) it's not about me anymore. It's about when the kids get up, when they go to bed, what they want to eat, what their sports are and everything. So you have to move from being selfish to being selfless. Right. And you have to understand and try to get the team to understand. It's not about me. It's not about certain individuals. It's all about the team. And the more that as a leader, you can be selfless and the more that you can get everybody on the team to understand it's not about them. It's about the team. Um, the better leader you're going to be in the, in the, the better team you're going to have. It's going to go pretty far. And I think some people's DNA make them naturally better at that. Like, I think I was, I was a good rep. I don't know if I was the best rep. I was good, but I really, found my passion and like my calling, whatever you want. As I moved into coaching people, like I, I couldn't work enough. I just loved, I could spend, I remember reps telling me, 
you know, you can spend hours with total attention on a whiteboard or an org chart. Like that's that that spoke volumes. And so I think there's part of that is you got to enjoy uh, easily, you know, making the the team first. Well, right. I have a theory about that, Kelly. I think that J.D. Burkhart was uh, on one of our original podcasts and he's a um, he was a seller under John and then he became a division one um, football coach. And and he talked about some of the greatest coaches that he saw were like the walk-ons, the um, people that weren't the superstars. <clears throat> it really, it really falls in line with what you're saying and how I've uh, really thought about that is I think when you're in that situation, <clears throat> you have to be aware of what the fundamentals are. Because when you see somebody, this happened to me when I went to Boise State and I watched a guy named John Rady who went on to play 15 years in the NFL for the Atlanta Falcons. And I'm, I'm looking at him and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm never going to be this dude. Um, and I was able to really understand watching him. I was able to understand the fundamentals. And I think people that do that, who understand the fundamentals, they're more in tune with that. They have a better capability later on of being able to coach to that. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they had off the chart performance on the fundamentals when they were an individual contributor. It's really, really interesting to me. So when I'm interviewing people, I'm always, I really go back to the fundamentals. And if people are emotionally connected to fundamentals, they're typically going to be a really good coach. They're going to be a good leader, but if they're not emotionally connected to the fundamentals, they're going to struggle. Yeah. Hey, Kelly, everybody believes they can do the CRO job, right? Everybody <laughs> wants that title. Everybody wants to be the person. And then they get in that job and they get slapped with reality of what that job really entails, and especially if you have reps that are spread across different countries like in Europe and Asia. What did you need to learn about moving into the CRO role and what advice could you give to our audience about the realities of moving from any type of line manager into the CRO responsibility. Yeah. Um, great question. I, I spent a lot of time now with people who are moving into the role for the first time, or they're trying to get it. First of all, my first advice, I give them all <clears throat> from scar tissue. I've had from times where it was not just challenges. There's always challenges in the job, but where it was bad times <laughs> um, is really look for alignment. Like at that level, you're generally meeting with the board or the investors. Mm -hmm. If you're not, that should be a red flag. If you're truly at a CRO position, you're meeting with a management team, try and look for consistency of what, where they are in the product market fit in the scale up, go fast versus address a growth challenge. What is their, what is their growth thesis? Where are they? And are you getting alignment? Because for me, what I say is, look, there's lots of other things, but challenges will come. You have to know that the leadership team and the board and the investors are aligned or it's going to be difficult because I, my worst times have been when that's occurred. After that, you know, I think um, the job of the CRO today is so much more rewarding because it entails so much more. Like when you first did it, you, you know, you went uphill both ways in the snow and all of that, like it's, it's different now. Um, you gotta be in some ways a CIO because there's so many 
great technologies out there to help you to do it better. You have to be good at cross-functionally leading, whether you own marketing as a CRO and, and revenue retention and with sales or products or you own just sales. No matter whether you have them, authoritarian or non-authoritarian leadership, those connectivity will set you up for success. And then the one you mentioned, which was a struggle for me, being a, a Texan and an American, you don't know the blind spots you have to what it's like to be in Germany or in Amsterdam or Japan or wherever. Um, and, and it's different. And so I also tell CROs, is you, it, it's amazing if you can get to a position where you have teams across the globe. That's a great position to be in. But you got to go spend time in the field to see from their perspective how things are coming across, even when calls are scheduled, right? It's like little things that make it immensely frustrating for your teams. And it's key as a CRO to have the hearts and minds and understand what they need in all parts of the world. Yeah. Well, you have a lot of people that are whispering in your ear also as to what they think you ought to do. A lot of times it's for their best interest. So talk a little bit about, you know, you have to make a decision, get all these people whispering in your ear and the buck stops with you. You got to make a decision. Can you talk a little bit about that? As CRO? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, let me go to one of the more challenging times and, and, I, I would say it was a bad time for me, not because we're having a business challenge. You're going to have those, like just expect them. And those are great opportunities to learn. Um, it's when you get into those and you have misalignment, right? You have, um, there's a book great by choice and they talk about bets, cannonballs, bullets and cannonballs and cannonballs. It's a big bet and it's either going to be a big miss or a big return where bullets are more calculated. You hit your target you build upon it and ideally it grows to be a cannonball. And I was in a situation where we had some investors that wanted to go to this big bet and the management team. And then you had other investors that wanted to go, you know, bullet size and there was a debate. And so you're going cannonball, big bet, it's been agreed, but you have others that want to not deploy the resources to do it. So you're in a no-win situation. And, and so, and, and that one, my only choice was to bring it to the leadership and the board and push it for alignment because you can out of fear and, and a bias for action just to go on knowing that you're in a bad situation. And in that one, I just brought it back and we, we resolved it. But there's, there's many of those. I think the key is knowing or doing as much as you can before you go into an opportunity, knowing that the leadership team and the board are very open they address problems and opportunities that come up. They are aligned to what they're trying to achieve. Um, and even gets into understanding what type of investors you have, because that can be very informative on how they deal with bets and investments and challenges in the business. Now, Kelly, you've worked at both PE or private equity backed and also venture capital backed companies. In this case, are you talking more about like a PE backed company? Yeah, the, the yeah. challenge I mentioned was a was a PE back one. Yeah. I, fi I figured that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what you see, whether it's venture capital or or private equity with some investors, I think the key is to look at each investor and whether or not they're on a win streak or a losing streak. Mm. <laughs> if they're on a losing streak, they probably don't want to shoot the cannonball. <laughs> they want to shoot the gun, right? With the bullet. Exactly. 
if they're on a lose, you know, winning streak, they may want to go for the cannonball. Right. But they're just like us in some ways, as far as being salespeople where, Hey, if you miss quota four quarters in a row, you know, you're probably yeah. not in good shape if, if this one goes sideways also. So now they're being a little selfish instead of selfless. And they're thinking more about themselves than they are thinking about the company. Yeah, and that's, and, that's what I think you're referring to. Yeah. And it's good coaching. I try to most, many people don't really understand the differences and I try and explain to them. Well, why don't you explain it? What is the difference yeah. for most of our listeners? What's the difference between working for a private equity backed company yeah. versus a venture capital backed company? Very important to understand. Yeah. And, and working for it's one thing, being a, at a level where you're the top go-to-market or sales leader, it's critical. And most don't appreciate it. Right. Because, you know, you have the team, that's job number one, customers, job number two. But let's be honest, there are investors. <laughs> you might be public, you might be private, which, which is venture-backed or private equity. You know, in venture, they're usually in earlier, they're usually a minority, so there's, there's multiple um, they're looking for high returns for every one of them. Their probability on each is, is a different expectation. Um, longer horizons, usually, depending on where you are. And it's most often an organic growth play, right? Because they've got a product market fit where they are. In private equity, and they all, are, there's a gray area, but private equity, generically, they're later in a company. Generally, they're vertical, vertical companies. They have majority control right? Um, they're expecting lower returns. It's a higher probability that they want to get it. It's a shorter time frame. That's an important one. Where are you in their hold period as a CRO? Because it's going to determine their propensity to make a big bet or a small bet and how they want to address challenges. And then it's always organic growth, but many are looking at accretive M&A and margin expansion coupled with that. That's like generically the difference is what's important is that you understand the leadership team and the ownership structure, how Nearage or Thomas wins in their fund and where they are because they're one of your constituents. Mm -hmm. And what is the, uh, why did you decide to move from a venture capital backed company into a private equity backed company? Yeah, because uh, you you probably knew going in that th that was going to be some of the challenges. Yeah, and I and you know at the time I I didn't really understand private equity, and what I understood was okay. was generic and probably wrong. Uh, and then I ended up learning the differences, which you know we just hit some of them. I went in private equity. One, I'd come off a very difficult private to public, uh, so venture back to public situation. Um, I had some scar tissue. Uh, the private equity said, hey, you don't have a lot of experience in this model, right? Highly acquisitive, um, buying companies globally. It's a great experience for you. You've done um, small startups, public um, and scale plays. Try this. And, and yeah, it was a new experience. And so that was why I did it. And just like venture back, some have been wildly successful. I've learned a ton. Um, and some have been you know, not so good. And really it comes down to what are they trying to achieve? Is the leadership team and the investors aligned? Where are they in their investment and their value creation, you know, thesis for the business? And then with that, you can have your eyes wide open on what you can learn and the impact you can have. Yeah. So the so, one you were talking about where they were 
acquiring a lot of companies. That's where it's a private equity firm and they're doing what a lot of people refer to as like a roll up, right? We're going to go look at a space. We believe that if we look at the space and we, t- and we acquire five different companies or, you know, three or five, whatever it might be, we roll them all together and we combine that and um, combine, especially all the G and A and another type of redundant, let's call it redundant, you know, parts of the companies that we can roll that up and we have a real good chance of taking that, you know, running it more efficiently and take, take, you know, renaming it and taking it public sometime down the road after we pay off the debt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Often they have some thesis in a space and they may, as you say, start with four or five, they roll up or they start with one where the founders have run out of energy or they don't know how to scale it further and they come in and they operationalize and generally, they're doing a lot of M&A. So in this situation, for me, that was the case. And by the way, that's a whole world of learning where my eyes were wide open. Like I had a ton to learn about the cultural, the system, the go-to-market. Um, and so it's not a right or wrong. It's, it's, there's a lot to learn there. Yeah. You've, you did it. If I remember correctly, looking at your background, you've done that M&A piece probably about, I think you've had four exits and you've had 30 um, acquisitions or 30 plus acquisitions. Yeah. Across what have you, the- what have you, yeah. What have you learned? Uh, I mean, that's a heck of a lot of experience with, with putting companies together. What are some of your biggest takeaways? We, you, you know, they all have different playbooks. Some might be where you're giving those customers a better home. Some might be a technology. You know, they come in all flavors. The one thing they all have in common that's the hardest part is the cultural integration. Yeah. You know, they've been run by amazingly brilliant product led founders often, or they were domain expertise people. And, um, and so you're, you know, you're taking over their, their baby. And so bringing them in and then you may have another founder, which might've been their direct competitor. And so it's, you know, the cultural aspects is probably the biggest challenge and bringing it together. And then of course you have to look at the go-to-market of the different segments. Do we integrate these products? Do we co-bundle them? You know, where do they have a market presence in US where or, or in Europe, et cetera? There's just a lot of operational work to getting the value out of the acquisition. It must be tough to get a lot of those <laughs> people smokes. on the same sales process, the same qualification methodology, because some of them, like you said, depending upon where they come from, they must just fight you tooth and nail. Oh, yeah. And by the way, not one company, I was talking to somebody the other day, not one company I've ever acquired did the field have any responsibility for forecasting. It's one person. Really? Yeah. I, it's, wow. the mo- it's the one thing I've seen, if you said the most surprising thing, yeah. 30 acquisitions, is how many companies, one person, and then you go to the rep, two levels down, and they're like, I don't forecast. I just sell. Someone else for wow. like, well, what happens when they get hit by a bus? Yeah. <laughs> wow. How yeah. did they, and how accurate are they? Oh, it, it's, it's usually uh, terrible or they're good, but it's so single threaded. And, and the sad part is explaining how are you developing your managers and your reps? If the only time they, they understand the importance of, Demonstrating you know your business, which is called forecasting. (laughs) They only start to learn that when they get to your level. And so in every single one of them, the biggest challenge is 
helping the reps know, wait, you own your franchise and you're accountable to understand it. The playbook should help you be more accurate on that. Yeah. But I got to believe some people buy in and a lot of people don't. Yeah. Yeah. We could do a whole, we could do a whole podcast on that concept. Yeah, you have a place for some of those people too. Just transferring the accountability or, you know, I see companies just like, we'll, we'll come back and talk about that topic because I think it's a really, really good one where you said the franchise concept. I really love that. It's, it's like, companies that don't do that very well it's a lonely place i mean it, it, you talk about single threaded it's also very lonely it's like at the end of the day you're calling the ball and you're you're really missing an opportunity in a good way to transition that accountability to its most appropriate level is down at that you know that rep level uh, of understanding and being responsible and thinking like they're growing a business if it, as if it was their business. So again, we can, we probably have to have you back to talk about that. Cause I know you have a really good dialogue on that with playbooks and QBRs. Are you ready, and, ready to do a wrap? I am. I'm doing a, whoa, I'm whoa, ready. whoa, whoa, whoa. Then we have to talk about something. So, okay, go ahead. Kelly's going to have to talk about this Spartacus workout. So yeah. years ago, there was this, <laughs> Article in Men's Health, if I remember, it was called the Spartacus Workout. It was a high-intensity interval training circuit. And Kelly, you got to keep me honest here. I think it was designed to basically torch your body and torch your cardiovascular system. It was, I think it was like 10 exercises, each <laughs> lasting like 60 seconds, you know, with some dumbbells and some body weight exercises. And then it went on for like one hour, right? And and now tell everybody about yeah. the first time that that you did this. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the other part too is workout. <laughs> the reason I did it is um, a guy I reported to who was who could sell you anything, Jim Drill. Jim Drill, and yeah. Great teeth. <laughs> and I was at dinner and he was like, I'm getting in great shape, and there's this great workout, and I'm you know, he's in my face and his hands are flailing. And and so I was like, okay, 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 I'll I'll go do it. And I was in reasonable shape, went in the gym the next day. Made it through the first circuit. Obviously, in retrospect, I probably should have gone easier. Went through the second of like three. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't. And then I stepped off and said, look, I'm going to go jog on the treadmill. I couldn't even walk on the treadmill. Almost tripped coming off. Drove home. And something had never happened to me. My body was shriveling up from the fingers and toes in. I tried to call my wife, left her a voicemail. I noticed I sounded like the guy of Wolf of Wall Street, like what I was trying to say and how I was saying. It wasn't, I pull into my garage. I can't get a hold of her. I'm like, okay, it feels to me like my body's shutting down. I call 911. I'm kind of hobbling in. The body's shutting down. He called 911 on himself. 911 says, sir, we can't, we honestly can't understand you. So go by the front door, unlock it and lay down and put your phone on your chest. I was like, wow, they're giving up on me. I do that. Long story short, while this is happening before the the paramedics get there, the wife and kids walk by and go, what are you doing? And I think she said some expletives about stop fudging around. She could see I wasn't talking. And they come in, they take me to the hospital, they put me through full IVs and IVs, and they're like, hey, how'd this happen? And it was the workout. And my wife took a picture on my chest and said, I am Spartacus. And I think <laughs> <laughs> when he was in his hospital bed, she put a piece of string with a paper around his oh, chest. 
And it's you know, uh, I am Spartacus. Meanwhile, he's got these lines that are cutting into his body. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm laughing about that, but I'm reminded of like uh, uh, every year there's some college football program like Iowa, like four or five kids, the exact same. Your, your body, your muscles were actually breaking down and dying. So like if the, the scenario on that is the worst case scenario is that you, you like really could really could injure yourself. That's what I tell Johnny Mac when I'm training with them. Sometimes he's trying to get me to do some of the Spartacus stuff. I tell him, look, I don't want to die from this workout. And so I don't want to, uh, I, now I have a new code name for it. So I'm just going to say Spartacus John now from, yeah, from and, and John and Jim being very, you know, understanding and sensitive leaders put it up in front of the entire kickoff of dude you yeah. gotta send it to me i got we gotta put that in the show notes buddy build i gotta character. see that build character made kelly who he is today absolutely exactly. hey let's do a let's do a quick quick recap um we started off talking kelly about your background and you know starting in arkansas and it, but before that you really talked about the awareness of why I'm doing what I'm doing. And you, you talked about being conscious, striving to be consciously competent. And you talked about the combination of the art and science. And I like what you said, I, you know, as, as you started to apply more science to it, you thought of it as like golf where you're assessing each shot, you're assessing where you are in, in the fairway is it to your approach shot or whatever. I thought that was a, I thought that as art and science come together, there's a lot more ability to actually assess your performance. We moved into the role of the frontline manager, and you talked about 80% of it is really about people and 20% about the playbook. And you talked about all great teams having a recipe, and, and that recipe is really really, really known today as the playbook. And then you talked something really important that I wrote down on second line manager. You said that somebody said to you, speaking generally, you are generally speaking and you have to be really, really clear with your intent. It's like that old uh, phone thing we used to do as kids and you whisper to one person, you whisper it in. By the time it gets a around, the, the message is completely, has completely change. So I thought that was uh, a really, really awesome comment that you made. Um, John, I think, said you lose your right to think about yourself first. You move from selfish to selfless. Uh, and that is not easy to do. <laughs> that is not easy to do. We then talked about the role of the CRO. And over and over, we talked about a lot of things. But what I heard you saying was, if you could say one phrase or one word, it would be about alignment and the criticality of alignment uh, with all of, you know, product fit, with marketing, with sales, with investor community, you know, strive for alignment. You, you referenced a book and we'll make sure we put it in the show notes. Uh, uh, Great by Choice was the book that you referenced. And then we just talked about complexity as you move up into the CRO role and global implications and and you, you, you talked to us about the, you know, really having to really understand those other geographies and get into those other geographies. And I, I think it's been hard to do over the last few years. And that's been a real, real struggle for some CROs. They haven't even been able to get into the geography. So hopefully that's changing 
uh, with the times of post-COVID here, if I can even call it post-COVID. You talked about uh, the investor communities and working in PE and venture capital. Um, Johnny talked about understanding investors winning streaks or losing streaks. And I think that dictates a lot of their strategy and their disposition uh, towards you. And that's, that's, that was a powerful concept for me. You summed it up really well, where you said venture tends to be earlier involvement, longer horizons, uh, most often organic PE is later involvement, uh, majority ownership, uh, shorter time frames, more roll-ups. And you really kind of just kind of sum that up where you said, you know, understanding all of this and understanding how it will cause the leadership teams to, uh, to act or react. Uh, and then the cultural implications. We talked a lot about recruiting too throughout. And you, um, you talked about, um, we, we all talked about making sure you don't dehumanize the recruitment process and making sure you get really, really intimate in that process. I loved your scenario, folks. If you're listening to this, go back and listen uh, to how Kelly really sits with individuals and spends like the 70, 30 time where he is really, uh, you know, spending, uh, you know, 70% of the time uh, really digging in and, and uh, understanding who that individual is and allowing them kind of 30% of the time to, you know, to kind of dig back in for, you know, on what the company's like that they're interviewing for. Love the idea of life in three sections, you know, the early years, the middle years, and then the present years. Um, so I know I prop, we were talking about a lot of stuff, Johnny, did I miss anything? I think you did a good job. Kelly, you think awesome. you missed anything? No, I just, um, I'm impressed. Uh, Cap gets to do all the recapping. That's right. That's right. Somebody coined it. We're branding it. They called it the recap with the K-A-P. So I think we're going to call it the recap. I like it. Hey, Johnny, take us to the rapid fire, will you? Yeah, Kelly, a couple of rapid fire questions. All right, bud. Yeah. Okay. How about your ideal day off of work? It begins or ends with the mountains. Uh, Ideally with family. Jenna, I love the hike. I love the mountain bike. They ski, I snowboard, but the mountains are our happy place. Uh, maybe a nice glass of wine at the end. Just don't get hit by it. Just don't run into any deer, right? There are deer up on that mountain too. Trust yeah, me. <laughs> right. And there's also probably some mountain lions too, right? I mean, there's been plenty yeah. of mountain bikers running to mountain lions. How about your favorite meal? Uh, my brother, one of my brothers, uh, Bear, uh, is a master griller and smoker. And he makes a beef rib that'll make your mama cry. Like it is really good. And so uh, it'll be that meal and others around it, maybe a football game on the background. Shout out to Bear Connery. What a cool name, buddy. Love it. He smokes it first, Kelly. Yeah, he does it on a pellet smoker, seven hours. There's some ponzu sauce and other stuff. I'm trying to watch over his head, but he's also competitive. So he doesn't want me to get his his (laughs) recipes. But I mean... It's it's to is that a Traeger. Is he doing that on a Traeger, Kelly? I think he's using a Green Mountain, but honestly, yeah. he's got a scary arsenal. He's got a Kubota. He's got a Green Mountain. He's got a grill. It's is it the yeah. Green Mountain or the Green Egg? Green Egg. Well, he's got the Kubota version of the Green Egg, and then he's got a pellet smoker. That's okay. Green 
Ooh. Got it. Is it automatic pellet smoker? Like it feeds automatically? Yeah, yeah I, I have this fear that my brother's going to be going, hey, I'm getting lit up for requests from my beach. <laughs> That's right, Bear yeah, Connery. Right. right. How about you have a favorite movie you've ever, of all time? Spartacus. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, of course. Yeah, several, but there's one from early. So maybe listeners, I don't want to give them an obvious one. There's a um, one, it's a Hemingway book, Islands in the Stream. Um, and it's, yeah, it's George C. Scott and he's a sculptor that reunites with his kids, uh, and during world war II. it's a, it's a fantastic movie. Going wow. deep, Johnny Mac, really? going deep. Kelly's going deep. <laughs> yes. How about the best concert you ever been to Kelly? Uh, they opened up a movie, Moody theater, new venue in Austin recently. And I went with, um, both our college kids, which, you know, is not easy to get them in the same place. Uh, and Jenny and we saw the Eagles. Oh, um, yeah. So, fantastic. Yeah, it was amazing. Talk about some guys that can harmonize. huh? Yeah. Yeah. And um, Kelly, you have a favorite charity you want to tell people about? I would love to. Um, the 100 Club, uh, which is an organization. They have different state organizations. So where you are, they most likely have one. It's locally based. And. They give money and assistance to um, families of fallen firefighters and police officers. Mm. Uh, when I got out of college, all three of my older brothers were police officers. They've all since gone on to other ventures, but they spent a majority of their career in law enforcement. So I've got a soft place in my heart for that. And they do great awesome. work. They hand checks to families. Well, uh, Cap, we can put that in the show notes, right? I love it. Absolutely. Yeah. Kelly? Stay safe, my friend. Don't run into any deer. Easy on the Spartacus workouts. <laughs> and thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. I know I really appreciated it. And I'm really grateful. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you both for what you're doing. Hey, brother, we really, really appreciate you. Thanks for spending time with us. And for all of you listening, thank you for listening to The Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.